Hello, friends. Welcome to Silo Busting. I'm your host, Allison Coton, an interaction designer at EPAM Continuum. Today's conversation got me thinking about learning and teaching in science fiction, an area of world building that tells us a lot about alien cultures far from our own by distance or by time. Think about the desk tablets in Ender's Game, the all-too-real virtual reality of interactive playroom walls in The Martian Chronicles, a young Spock's Vulcan learning pod in the 2009 Star Trek movie. Beyond the obvious screen-mediatedness of these fictional students' experiences, what all these learning tools have in common is reliance on the independence of students, an absence of instructors, a sense of personal isolation. But when do we as contemporary Earthlings feel most connected to, most nourished by our academic experiences? I'd argue it's when we're debating with our peers, experiencing intellectual pushback on our half-baked ideas, or maybe hero-worshipping our instructors a little, not wrestling with software, sitting alone in a quiet room, stationary behind a screen. Dmitry Krasovsky, our Head of Education and Learning, and Kevin Labick, SVP of Digital Engagement, are about to talk about a revolution in educational technology that seems as obvious as it is important. Put the student experience first. Today's learners, informed by video games, online shopping, and social media, have high standards for the design and usability of digital tools. To meet those expectations, content creators, educational publishing companies, or individual instructors have to start delivering not just information, but an experience. In a field not known for technical savvy or design dominance, the learning curve will be steep. But to survive, academia is going to have to get creative about the future of learning. Guys, uh, thank you so much for joining um, Silo Busting today. We're really looking forward to talking to you about ed tech. And I'd like to start off with Dimitri. Dimitri, can you talk about how digital technology is changing a kind of traditional area such as education, how how is digital tech really altering the landscape there? Can you can you get us started by talking a little bit about that? Absolutely. Uh, well, such changes don't really uh, happen overnight, and uh, I do remember that uh, back in the nineties, we were among the first building online courses, and at that time, we all expected that um, digital would replace print. Well, that didn't really happen. And uh, I remember back in 2010, I think, when um, Apple announced iBooks and Author, that we all expected uh, individual author materials, decline of publishing, uh, kind of similar to what we've seen with iTunes. And that didn't happen as well. But uh, um, there are still many changes that uh, were adopted by the industry. And and that includes... uh, various kinds of student information systems, uh, learner management systems, assessment and certification tools, and, and many others that really help to automate educational processes. So really tools or, or uh, processes that help get additional value, get additional benefit. And also many ideas and innovations have been adopted from other industries, gaming, television, music, others. And, and many of them involve machine learning or AI-based tools. And really, here I could talk for for a very long time. However, one of the recent digital trends uh, seems to be the most transformational. And this trend is really moving away from adoption-driven ownership model to user subscriptions. And this is happening literally as we speak. And all of these changes have been additionally boosted by COVID. It's no surprise to anyone today that uh, education can happen remote and at home. Yeah, no, I feel it with my own family and my own kids. Um, uh, We really have had to make a a big shift, and it's obviously going to have repercussions for a long time on the way education is um, dealt with and delivered. 
I'd like to talk a little bit about design thinking and how this is going to be one way we, we deal with all this change. Kevin. Hello, Kevin. How are you doing, man? Hey, how's it going? Can you, can you talk a little bit about, um, well, first just sort of tell listeners a little bit about what design thinking is all about and then how it sort of, uh, is influencing what's happening in the education industry right now. Yeah, sure. Well, I think one of the core tenets of design thinking, as opposed to, you know, we'll call it alternative ways, you know, more traditional ways of thinking is that uh, design thinking is putting the the end user or a human being at the center of the focus and then um, coming up with um, ways that emanate from how to kind of drive um, behavioral changes, attitudinal changes, motivational uh, changes in that end target uh, user or that person. And then, um, you know, kind of designing uh, an approach that meets the need. And then from there, you kind of map it back to the technologies, the operations, the processes, the methodologies, and all, all of that. Those, those come in support, and they're not the driver. Instead, it's the human being that is the driver. And, uh, and ultimately, what we're finding is it's been um, it's gained in, in, in popularity as we've kind of watched the user, the business user, the consumer um, really being in the driver's seat and making decisions and, uh, and you know, kind of their expectations being that they will, that they're, um, they're the center of the focus and that they're not expected to kind of follow some archaic process that's not intuitive to them. So uh, an entire school of thinking, an entire school of, um, of uh, consulting and delivery has been designed around this new expectation from, uh, from the, the user. That's really, that's really cool. I, I'm wondering, Dimitri, how design thinking has influenced your work and sort of how are clients um, talking about it? Are they curious about it? Do you have to educate them? on what design thinking is or how is that happening out there in the field? Well, a very good question. Uh, well, as Kevin said, really design thinking puts the, uh, the user in the center of the universe. And in our case, it's the learner. And the transformation that I mentioned earlier implies like really changes in all aspects, including the notion of the product, educational product itself. The idea of the educational product really transforms much faster than education. And uh, with heavy penetration of digital, users now expect a very different level of experience. So we're talking about different types of designs. We're talking about very different types of interaction with users. So instead of having products that uh, solve the uh, the institutional needs, we're now trying to build products that solve the uh, the uh, student the learning needs, which is a completely different thing. And uh, the knowledge of that, all of the uh, traditional educational companies they they lack it, and uh, we see more and more solutions and approaches adopted from other industries, and many educational companies actually hiring user experience and product professionals from other verticals. You mentioned before uh, COVID, and I'd like to ask you both about that, how you've seen COVID's influence on this sort of educational tech design and, and sort of how things, I assume, they've uh, accelerated, right? But has there, has there any been uh, specific 
influence felt in the kind of work we're doing in this area. Kevin, have you, have you noticed COVID uh, taking over the driver's seat maybe a little bit? Uh, I certainly have. And I think many of us don't, um, don't have to go much further than, you know, our living rooms to, if, uh, if you have, if you have family, if you have children um, to see the impact of COVID on their learning as uh, many schools around the, around the world have gone to um, some uh, degree or another, a virtual format. And, um, and then you also don't have to see, look uh, much further than that to see the, the failings of the current learning processes and systems in a virtual environment and how, um, you know, it's a, in a fairly immature state. So COVID has, like it has in um, other industries, uh, has increased the digital imperative when it comes to online learning, um, it's code, it's brought at front and center, uh, and then what we're left with is very obvious human problems: problems uh, encountered by the learner, problems encountered by the the teachers, uh, and problems uh, encountered by the um, creators of content and the facilitators and and um, providers of the technologies uh, behind them. Which is why. Uh, you know, I'm glad you started this by talking about design thinking, which is where I think design thinking will help lead the way towards uh, the solution. So, Dimitri, what about you? How has COVID uh, affected things from your point of view? Well, it, it's interesting from the standpoint of business, we see that, uh, like we, we, we like to say, speed kills when you don't have it, right? So the organizations that are fast to adopt these direct to learning approaches to the understanding of the design thinking. They're really getting out of the uh, COVID. Well, if, if we all can say that, getting out of it right now. But uh, they're doing through these times much better than the traditional digital or, or uh, educational organizations. So the companies that uh, try to save money and, and kind of survive, they may not actually survive COVID. Whereas the companies who have strategic placement and investment on the direct-to-learner experiences on this uh, product thinking, they really seem to be to, to be doing much better than the others. Yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. I, I'm curious about sort of the new business models, right, that are coming out of the, the behavior change. Can you talk a little bit more about how this is uh, affecting the way these educational companies, institutions are um, – you know, running their business, actually, what, the, what kind of business model innovation is happening here specifically? I'll, uh, I'll, I'll start. And then, uh, Dimitri, maybe you can, um, you add additional color and detail. Sure. Um, so, you know, traditionally within the space and, and Dimitri will be able to provide some very concrete examples. It's been, um, kind of a, it's a B2B model. Um, it's a B2B to C as you would say, right? So it's a, uh, provider of educational content, to the um, academic institutions who then provide it to the uh, end student. Um, and there's a simplicity uh, and an elegance to that model because you're, uh, you're working with a fewer number of individual organizations, which are the academic institutions. Um, you know, there is a, it's, a, it's easier to understand your market. And then the sales channel um, is also very clear and the number of buyers, right? And you're selling in a B2B environment, which which means that you're dealing with kind of funded institutions who are, um, they must buy from you because there's few providers. Uh, and 
So there's a level of simplicity and ease and there's tradition there. Um, that broke when, um, when learning has gone uh, virtual in, at, at, on MOS uh, the way it has now. So going um, direct to learner is a paradigm shift that um, there, the rules have not really been written and they certainly are not mature and established. So you have organizations who are used to selling to institutions now needing to become consumer um, product companies and consumer marketing companies, which is really outside of their skill set, their culture, and they have they're struggling to support that operationally within their internal organizations. So it is, you know, a classic case of disruption. Um, and the other uh, dynamic happening is what is the role of the education or the academic institution in all of this, right? They have always been the provider, the direct to learner mm-hmm. provider. So now what, wh- what is their role? Are they being disintermediated or are they still a necessary and, um, you know, a uh, critical partner in all of this? It's a, there is a question mark there. Um, and, you know, Dimitri, why don't I pass it over to you to continue this, uh, this kind of uh, vein of thought? Well, well, I think you hit the point. Uh, just a few practical points to add. When we talk about this uh, B2B model, it's when the educational organizations work with uh, educational institutions with what they call an adoption-driven uh, process. So there is an adoption process happening usually annually within universities or schools when they purchase uh, specific educational products. And what that means is it, it happens annually, sometimes the cycle even more than, uh, than a year. And uh, for, for educational uh, product companies, the product thinking becomes also very seasonal, where uh, no changes are usually implemented within the season because they don't know what's going to be sold in next year and so on and so forth. So when we change that thinking towards the uh, the end users who become now the buyers, you, you, you need to change the way you approach product building and product implementation. Yes, that's interesting. It sounds like these um, uh, educational companies have to do a lot of learning themselves with this pivoting, this sort of rethinking to the sort of direct-to-consumer model. Um, what, what, are the, what are the competencies that they need to sort of learn or master to go direct to learner? Uh, I'm curious as to, as to what you, you guys are teaching them. Kevin, do you want to take this one? Yeah, sure. Well, think about it. Um, you have um, marketing and sales organizations, uh, and you have product development uh, teams. And their, uh, their target customer had been academic institutions who have um, inherently different needs, motivations, um, decisioning patterns than an individual learner would have. And so it really means um, they have to uh, kind of break from those patterns that they've perfected and honed and, you know, uh, have have become extremely efficient over time. And now they've got to turn it towards more of a mass market uh, kind of of a, a focus which means understanding the new um, learning needs and trends and the consumption of learning uh, product and content uh, that's happening. And is and as we know, this is a constantly shifting, rapidly changing market as 
Um, you know, the jobs are, you know, if you've got uh, a kid in high school and they're saying, yeah, I, I want to know what I I'm going to do when I graduate college. Um, you know, I find myself speaking at least to my own children and saying, <laughs> what, what you're going to end up doing probably hasn't been invented yet. Um, and so in that kind of marketplace, um, it puts a lot of pressure on these educational content companies to come up with a curriculum and learning content that would appeal to that type of learner. Um, they need to kind of become futurists, understand these macro and micro trends across industry and across uh, across um, different markets, and uh, then come up with compelling content that uh, a learner would want to want to have. Now, that's a lot of responsibility. For an, inst- for an organization that yeah. used to just sell like almost made to order content to a university because it was the university's job to deal with that. And the university, um, whether or not they were doing a good job, they had very strong brands and they had consumer trust that they could predict the future and that they would prepare you for a future. Now we have these new organizations who have to kind of build that brand integrity uh, and they've never been in the position to have to do that before, not in this way. And, and I wanted to add to that, uh, like, like as Kevin's been mentioning, it, it's it's a complete change for those educational organizations who didn't really understand who their who their buyers were. Like well, with educational publishers, for example, they were selling through bookstores, they were selling through Amazon, various types of channels, but they didn't really know uh, who were the end buyers. They didn't know what to do with them, uh, even if they did. Even when they put the educational products, they uh, it was really course focused. So the instructors would give students the access tokens or so vouchers, and students would go in take a course from from a publisher or from an educational company, then another course from from a competitor, and so on and so forth. So there was really no uh, information flow from from one course to another, from the user experience and so on. Now it's it's starting to change, and these educational organizations face the challenge of how how could they learn who their learners are, and, and that's that's very transformational. Yeah, and I'll add to that. Um, think of the advantage that uh, the academic institutions have had, um, you know, for centuries. They've had direct access to students, and it's uh, very common for students to provide evaluations on on the courses, uh, on the institution. So they're getting, it's, they have so much data as to what works and what doesn't. And the content companies, the publishers have zero direct access or traditionally had zero direct access to those learners. What they had was they had, um, advisory panels that were made up of the educators who would come and advise them on content in this new world. Um, how much, uh, will, uh, will those panels uh, really help them because it's one step removed? Um, they need to have, in order to effectively sell to the learner, they need to have a direct relationship with the learner. Um, and again, these are new muscles that they're um, they have never um, utilized before. They're you know they're very weak um, and they're not moving <laughs> in this direction. So, yeah. uh, so this is a it's a lot of responsibility for uh, for transformation. And, um, and, but it, it is an existential, uh, need it, as Dimitri said, there are going to be, uh, organizations that don't survive the shift, 
um, because I think, you know, really everything is at stake for them to be able to make this uh, kind of behave in this new in this new model. I'm just kind of curious about educators uh, in this world as it is a shift to direct to learners. Does this change sort of the educators need to be aligned with institutions and maybe create opportunities for them to them as individuals to go directly to learners? And, and what might that do to the overall sort of market and approach? I think that's a great question. Um, you know, there, I think that you, we will definitely see a split in um, among educators those who um, embrace and become very savvy uh, at the um, uh, kind of um, online tools and virtual learning environment and those that resist or uh, continue to be challenged by it. Um, At the moment, um, teachers, educators have the worst of all worlds. Um, Even those who are really leaning in, um, the tools are not ready for prime time their schools are not supporting them appropriately. There is not a uh, consistency, uniformity. There's no playbook mm-hmm. by which they can follow. So, um, you know, what they are finding themselves is uh, overwhelmed by the technology and overwhelmed by the workload and then overwhelmed by uh, the new challenge of keeping their students engaged um, when they have a uh, screen um, that's the only connection is a screen. And many of these teachers, the best teachers, think about the best teachers we've had in, uh, in our lives. Um, they were the most animated and their, um, a lot of their success yeah. was their, the in-person experience being around them, the, the, their magnetic personalities, their ability to read your body language. Um, all of that has been taken away. And so, uh, I think, um, it will be a while before the new breed of best teachers emerge because uh, there's a lot more um, burden on them and there's uh, very different requirements in order for, for these teachers to succeed. That's really interesting. Do you think maybe part of teachers' jobs will be almost experience design um, because they, you know, that's how they'll differentiate themselves and attract students and uh, attention, really? I, I, I do. I think the teachers who – it's almost uh, – you can imagine like uh, – the media personalities um, who made the jump to social media, right? Then there are plenty who didn't. Um, will teachers have to become as savvy with the tools, with the medium, with the channels? And it's those who make that jump um, and really embrace it and uh, make it work, you know, um, contort it to their strengths versus um, suffer through and allow their weaknesses to be the only thing that the students see. I think um, I think that's what we'll see as the the ones who make it uh, on top. That's really cool. Um, so, what happens when COVID goes right? What happens after the, the present muddle is uh, is finished? What do you guys see maybe as sort of the future of digital education products? What are they going to look like um, in the post pandemic world? Do you have a, a maybe a lighthouse vision of the next generation of uh, educational products and Let's hear about it if you do, please. What I think will happen is we'll see some blended approaches. So I I would not expect the education to become fully online in the in the nearest future. Uh, but what I think will happen is more and more organizations will be looking for hybrid ways how to embed the online capabilities into the uh, student and teacher experience. 
like Kevin was saying, I, I mean, the most important part of the job for a teacher is really be able to reach the student mind. And it becomes very problematic when, when you're remote, both in terms of the distance, but also about the, the media that transforms uh, data. So the teachers will still be the cornerstone of education. That That's my personal belief. But the way they use and, and the tools they use will change and will change very fast. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking we're talking about months or, or a few years at least before we see very new and, and very engaging ways to interact uh, for students and teachers. And I'll add to it, um, in terms of like a potential lighthouse vision uh, or visions, um, similar to the commercial world, which um, uh, organizations, corporations around around the globe have come to the realization that a physical location, um, uh, offices, studios, um, physical workplaces, uh, aren't as important as they once thought, and therefore they are. Uh, they see a future in which, uh, at the extreme, they're doing away with things like corporate headquarters. Uh, but um, and and very common, they're realizing they can reduce their physical footprint uh, and spend less on real estate. But um, think of geography and um, and you know uh, in a much more expansive way. Um, that they're no longer geographically bound, but they can work in a in a highly distributed uh, fashion and be successful. If academic institutions really embrace uh, distant learning and virtual learning, they could do something similar, and that may be uh, really interesting. Imagine if uh, you know you know this could be a very bad example, but let's say MIT, which is a global brand, right? Um, and it is currently limited in the number of students it touches by the, um, the number of educators and the physical campus uh, environment that mm-hmm. they own. If they decided that they uh, really wanted to embrace um, online tools, theoretically, they could uh, be 10 times larger in terms of the students that they touch in a given year. Maybe mm-hmm. it could be unlimited, really. So what happens if these institutions suddenly say, you know what, forget it. I, I'm going to move into uh, being, I'm going to increase my reach to a global reach, and I'm going to increase my universe and my uh, student body, um, you know, tenfold, twentyfold. It could be, you know, really, it's as large as they would allow it. Now, uh, granted, they have a brand they have, you know, and their brand is uh, built on the academic standards that they've created. So they can't stretch it to the point where it breaks and it diminishes them. But it really does open up a possibility that um, you could become a student uh, without ever having to move to Boston or the United States um, and yet get theoretically the same quality institution. And then you get that value of that branded degree. So um, I think it's, uh, I think there is an opportunity to, um, for these institutions to really um, have a much bigger footprint. Similarly, publishers could also decide that they want to go head to head against some of these institutions because they, if they're the providers of the content, and if there becomes, as you, you know, you mentioned, Ken, like this idea of um, you know teachers taking a little bit more power and perhaps being um, uh, themselves going more direct to, to students, 
perhaps the publishers tap into a growing um, workforce of uh, technology savvy educators and they begin to, you know, kind of come yeah. the, the academic institution. So I think that there's, you know, who knows, right? I, we'd have to study this much, uh, much deeper, but I think that certainly some possibilities exist and it could get very interesting. Hopefully the winner in all of this is the learner. That's when you know the right moves have happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about learning in your own homes. I'm sitting here, my son has taken over um, my study and he's doing his Zoom classes all day long now. So I'm talking to you from my bedroom. What's the learning like going on with your families and, and your kids? How do your kids learn or how do you learn if you don't have a kid at home? I'm curious to know about your own experiences with sort of online learning right now. Dimitri, you want to start? Sure. Uh, well, I have a son who's uh, in college right now. So um, we've gone through the whole path of uh, doing digital studies at school and, and now in college. It, I must say it's very different from what I used to be or what I used to have uh, when, when I was a kid. Uh, but one of the challenges that I, that I see is uh, that the penetration and the adoption of those tools is still limited uh, in both K-12 and higher ed right now. We would like to see more of them, but at the same time, we would like to see uh, a more advanced use of those tools, meaning that not just throw uh, an educational course to a kid, because uh, it, it takes a lot of discipline, it takes a lot of motivation to sit hours in front of a computer setting. So kind of going back to, this, to the same idea of uh, teachers being the the provider of the knowledge for, for students, it kids need some help uh, with education in some order when, when they study. So it, it, it's very important that uh, as they study, they, they get help from uh, in educational institutions, uh, whether it's online or whether it's offline. Mm -hmm. And I'll just speak, you know, from very... Uh, personal uh, place, which is I have, you know, three kids, one in college, uh, two in high school. My uh, college kid is in Boston at Northeastern. Um, four out of five classes are virtual, but he still, and he, and he had the option of being hundred percent virtual, but you know, he's 20 years old. He had to get out of the house, right. For his own sanity, for our sanity, he moved to Boston. <laughs> You know, uh, and it's just part of the natural, you know, maturation, growing up, you know, doing, you know, being your own, uh, being your own person sort of thing. So um, uh, he's, he's there. It was when he uh, first was sent home last year in March, when everything, when all hell broke loose, um, it definitely uh, displaced I was like you, Ken. I, I lost my study because I'm thinking, hey, I'm paying so much money. <laughs> uh, here, you take this. I'll, I'll, I'll go work in the garage. Uh, my other two kids, high school kids, you know, uh, they're both working in their bedrooms. One is loving it. The girl is loving it. Um, and, you know, it, it, it suits the way that she wants to learn. And my uh, youngest, uh, who's a sophomore now in high school, uh, he's struggling. Um, he is he is a social creature. He needs to interact with other other people, his friends. He, you know, he needs change up. So um, sitting home, uh, sitting uh, in his bedroom, staring at a screen is not his preferred way of learning. And it's uh, it's been really tough on him. So um, we have an option of hybrid school coming up uh, later in November. Um, she is not taking it. He is jumping at it. So, um, 
you know, I've got some friends, their, their kids suffer from uh, learning disabilities. So dyslexia and, and other types of uh, attention uh, disorders. And they've told me that it's been a nightmare um, having their children forced to just stare at a laptop and try to learn that way has been, um, it really does, is not conducive to the styles of learning that, uh, that their children need. So I think, um, I think what we'll see if COVID, uh, continues and if, um, uh, that we're going to see a lot of, um, negative consequences where some, uh, some kids who had different learning styles are, are going to fall behind, unfortunately. So hopefully they'll, um, have some, uh, ability to catch up, uh, later on in, in some way. And, um, and that might be very interesting to think about it is, you know, how do we handle, uh, the, uh, a learner with very spe- special needs um, through virtual tools, and how will that be accomplished? I know design thinking will be core to it, but it'll be interesting to see what technologies are needed so that it can really um, accommodate the special needs of kids with um, specific learning disabilities. That's great. That's really great. I really am encouraged to hear that you two are on the case and really thinking about the individual learners and the sort of diversity of learners out there and how to sort of create things that, that truly work for them. I think it's it's uh, it's optimistic and uh, good projects. And I'm, I'm really glad to hear about all the good work you guys have been doing. So thanks so much, guys. It's been a real, uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. This has been Silo Busting, a podcast from EPAM Continuum. EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. Why do we do this? Because real opportunities aren't siloed. Thanks to Dmitry Krasovsky and Kevin Labek for the great conversation. Cheers to Kit Palalas, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Applause to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all his masterminding behind the scenes. I'm your host, Allison Coton, and I'm off to the holodeck. 